0: This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, We'd love for you to take that home. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, uh, you can find a table of contents at the front of that. It's going to let you know where John is located. The big numbers are going to be chapters. The small numbers are going to be verses. So as we've made our way through the Gospel of John, we've come to John chapter 17. And what we see in John chapter 17 is, is really something decidedly remarkable. Because in John chapter 17, we have an opportunity to see this dialogue that takes place from Jesus to God the Father. And so it's this, this tender moment where the son is preparing himself to go to the cross. He's been preparing the disciples over the course of his ministry for him to leave, for him to be gone, and for them to carry on his ministry in the absence of having Jesus there with them. But when John chapter 17 rolls around, you can really kind of see this prayer break out in, in three different sections, okay? So in one through five, one through five, Jesus is, is really praying in some sense for himself. Father, uh, glorify yourself through the Son. Glorify yourself through the Son. Help me to faithfully walk out what you set before me. In six through 19, Jesus turns and he's got this ragtag group of disciples, and and he knows that the next generation of Christians, the next generation of those who would come to follow him, is going to come out of this group and from the efforts of this group, and so he prays specifically for them, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And then in in 20 through the end of 17, he turns and he prays specifically directly for us. It's, It's amazing. I can't wait to get to that. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word it's so vitally important that he prays for the disciples because each and every one of us live out the heritage of the disciples we have received the word we have received the testimony of Jesus through the the work that was begun in the disciples and this is why it's so vitally important that Jesus prays uh, for them directly. Now, you're going to notice as we go through there that that even this prayer is, is broken in three parts. Jesus knows that he's getting ready to leave, and so there's this basis of his prayer that's six through the first half of verse 11. And so he talks about the basis, why it's necessary for him to pray for them. And then his prayer for the disciples is really split kind of on two different topics or two different ideas. One is for their perseverance. In a very real sense, Jesus has been preparing them for his departure, but rolling around in their minds is, what's it going to be like for us when he leaves? Can we make it without him? So he prays specifically to God on behalf of their perseverance, and then he recognizes that even if they make it, even if they do well and they're able to to carry on and to not fall away physically, they have to be a set-apart people. They have to be a distinct people. And so he prays for their sanctification. Jesus prays, that the disciples would would grow and be protected in their holiness. And then all this before he prays that they would be sent out. Well, let's let's start with the idea of the basis for Christ's prayer, starting in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, and now they know everything that you have given me is from you. Why? For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them no longer in the world but they are in the world and i am coming to you the basis of christ's prayer one of the things you'll notice in here in verses six and ten is that the father and the son share these disciples what did he say he says i've shown them your name i've displayed your name to those that you have given me out of the world so jesus in the course of his ministry is 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 fundamentally dependent upon the Father even to receive his followers, even to receive his followers. And so Jesus describes the disciples as being those whom God has given him from the world. Now, why is this important? Why is this distinction something we need to focus on? Because we recognize that Jesus doesn't say, hey, hey, just so we're clear, the disciples, they're my special group of people who are never going to make mistakes. Thanks for them. They're the tops, all except for Judas. You know, we'll talk about him later. But thanks for these guys. They're just so special. They're so amazing. No, what does Jesus say? He says, You've given them to me out of the world. This gives us the impression, it gives us the understanding that these are just normal people. There's nothing exceptional about them. Now, this is incredibly important because we recognize today where you sit, where I stand, that us, we, there is nothing exceptional about us. We are decidedly average and unexceptional. We should celebrate this, right? You no, know, we look at our children. We want them to be exceptional. We want them to be advanced. No, no, no. Want average children. Don't make them the tall poppies that get knocked down. We want average children. We want to be average people that God has plucked from the world, and he has invested in us the destinies of humanity. They are God's, and they are the Father's. They share them. Verse 10, he said, all mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The Father and Son share this special relationship with all those who would follow Jesus. That's part of the basis for why Jesus prays for them. He prays for them because they belong to him. Just as he prays for you today because you belong to him as well. He prays for them because they have believed in verse 8. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. The distinctive that sets them apart—he pulls them out of the world, and then the disciples believe, they trust. We notice this is this is very much the same for you and I. <clears throat> what sets Christians apart from non-Christians is the basis of having believe, of having believe. Think about the people that you come across—maybe people in your own family, maybe folks you know uh, from work—who what fundamentally separates the Christian from a person who doesn't follow Jesus is having believed in the Son. It's the basis of having believed and having trusted and then having moved forward in this trust that that satisfies the Father because Christ's work is believed on as being effective and faithful and true for the Christian. The basis of his prayer is that they are God's, that they have believed, and that they are faithful. Verses 6 and 10. They are faithful. Look at the latter part of verse 6. He says, look, we share them. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. They have kept your word. And the latter half of verse 10, it says, I am glorified in them. See, it's not just that they've believed and they said, look, notionally, we understand these things to be true. We're so glad that you set apart and you firmly established our eternity. Now let's just get back to some fishing. Now let's, you know, Matthew would say, let's just get back to some tax collecting. But on the basis of them having received the word, the word has changed their hearts and they are living decidedly different lives. They're living decidedly different lives. And so Jesus says, look, because they are showing forth in fruit, that they are followers of you, because they are showing forth in fruit in earnest that they are followers of me. I pray for them. One of the marks for you and I it's not just that we believe. As if we were to submit you in some type of membership examination and say, John, let me ask you a question. Do you believe? And John says, Yes. Harry, do you believe? Harry says, Yes. Lori, do you believe? Lori says, yes. But that in believing that your life would be transformed and translated into actions. The Bible tells us in a number of different places that even the demons believe and they tremble. But the belief in who God is isn't translated into a fundamental change of what they do and how they live. They come to this notional understanding and I would say that today we exist and we live within a culture of people who notionally know. They kind of get the idea of who Jesus is. They kind of get the idea that there's a certain thing that's special or intrinsically good about him and they shouldn't say bad things about him. They should come to church on Mother's Day. They should come to church on Christmas. They should come to church on Easter. Or maybe they don't because that's just when everybody else shows up. That's an odd metric. But that knowing that we'd believe, and in believing, we'd be faithful. But the last reason, the reason Jesus gives for praying for these is quite simply because he is leaving them. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. You and I don't live within an existence, within a reality where we show up to work on Monday morning, and Jesus is sharing the cubicle beside us. He's like, what'd you bring for lunch today? We're like, didn't, didn't have time. He's like, it's okay. I've got some sardines and some, some crackers and I'm going to feed the whole deal. And you're like, Jesus, you did that yesterday. Do you have any pizza? Do you have any pizza, Jesus? Do you have any hamburgers in there? This is a Greenville, Texas audience. We're tired of sardines and crackers. What else do you have? That's right. And so it's this understanding that that Jesus doesn't exist bodily for us, and so he recognizes that there's, there's an advantage in some sense, or at least that the disciples are accustomed to his bodily presence in their lives. Peter says something that's not quite right, and Jesus says, get, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan's like, I'm so glad you were here to tell me that. And so we recognize that, that they have existed and lived in a fashion of having Jesus bodily present before them. And he knows that in their departure, even though it is better for them that the spirit take residence inside them, that it is different. And on the basis of his departure, it is necessary that he pray. And so the substance of his prayer, he turns in the second half of verse 11, is for their perseverance. It's for their perseverance. It says, Holy Father, keep them in your name so important that they stay steadfast in his name the psalmist tells us in psalm 20 and verse 7 speaking of the name and the effectiveness of it he says some trust in chariots some in horses but we trust in the name of our lord god so he's not giving them some specific name as if they're searching through the text saying now what did he say his name was again and how did he say his name would be But he's saying, in essence, that in knowing his name, you're trusting in his characteristics. You're trusting in his abilities. You're resting and trusting in his power. And so his prayer for the disciples, and by extension, his prayer for us, is that we would be kept safe in his name. This is his prayer for you on Monday. This is his prayer for you on Thursday when you rush to the hospital. This is his prayer for you on Friday morning when you wake up and your spouse has left you. This is his prayer for you when your children make bad decisions. This is his prayer for you when your secret sin is exposed, that you would be tethered to his name. That you would be kept fast, holding to his name. This is his prayer for them. This is his prayer for us. He says, in holding fast to his name, that they would be one even as we are one. Unity is such a catchphrase, right? It's such a novel idea that we can be unified, and so we find that, I mean, let's be unified for the school district, let's be uh, unified for, you know, whatever it is, it, it, being Republicans, let's be unified in being Democrats, let's be unified as being independents, which is a strange concept. Let's be unified for all these various things, and, and, and we can try that. Let's be unified as Baptists, let's be unified as Protestants. The only thing that holds and has lasting unity is unity founded in his name. Now look at what he says here. He doesn't say let's just discount all of our differences, but he says let's focus on our stunning commonality. And the stunning commonality of all Christians, no matter what background, is that we be held steadfast in his name. And it's his name that has the power and it, it is effective and it is able to hold us fast and keep us unified, the kind of unity that we only ever see in the Trinity. This is what God would have for us. This is what he'd have for us as a local body, and this is what he'd have for us as many different church bodies all across our community, all across the world, that we would be one because we are one in him. Jesus says, he says, look, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. The name that you've given me, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he's talking about Judas and he's referencing Psalm 41, nine. What does it look like that he has guarded them? This is a fantastic word used here to describe the shepherds in Luke 2, eight who are watching the flock by night. This is the careful observance Jesus gave to the disciples that his outside influences and his internal proclivities as they're internally moved by the internal disposition of their hearts to do this or that, to err from God's word that he was keeping watch over them. Now, for the Christian, for the Christian, God has given this job, this role, over to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart and working in your life to direct and and to number your steps, right? Right? This is very important for us to realize. He's not just cast us a wash and said, look, you're just kind of on your own, you just kind of do whatever. No, in his leaving, he has given to the disciples and he has given to us his Holy Spirit to watch over us, to guard our steps. Man, this means that we need to live lives in submission to the Holy Spirit. We need to live lives purposely submitting ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit. God has not given me my life so that it might be some kind of manifest destiny, as if I wake up on Monday and say, what's best for me today? Or what's worse for the people around me if I'm just kind of a jerk? What is best for me today? But instead, to, to move and to live my life and to order my steps and saying, Holy Spirit, where would you have me to go? What would you have me to do and how might I glorify you in the midst of these things Jesus' word has been implanted in us it has been given over to us so that we might grow closer to the father we might be preserved and his prayer for them and his prayer for us is that we would be made holy in verses 13 through 17 he says but now I'm coming to you And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Notice the distinctive which causes the world to hate Christians is having received and lived in the word. I feel like we talk about this a number of times, but some of us are hated quite simply because you're a terrible person who happens to come to church on Sundays. No one likes you because you are—you're just unpleasant. You, you just are. My fear is that it is in the midst of your unpleasantness, someone would find out that this is where you go to church, and they would base their discussion, their understanding of what Christians are, on how you live your life. And so, my word to you, my encouragement to you, it would be stronger if it wasn't Family Sunday. So, let me just say this: Please stop being unpleasant. man, if you're a Christian, live like it. If you're not a Christian, this is a wholly separate conversation, but if you are a Christian, if you claim to know Jesus, then it's, it's probably a good idea that you live like it. I'm guessing that if, if you were to read Scripture over and over again, you would find that the, the degree to which you're unpleasant, which you're unwholesome, which you're not cared for, and which you find people, t- I don't know why, people just don't like me. It's because you're a jerk. Mildly unpleasant? That's what your wife told me. And so, looking at this, look at what he says here. He doesn't see it. I don't know why he doesn't see it. Well, it's because he's, I'm really sorry, Tim. We don't have a Tim, just in case anybody's wondering. Man, you guys are really uptight today. He's leaving, he speaks these things into the world, his joy is fulfilled in them. I've given your word, the world has hated them. Not because they're because they're not of this world. Just as I'm not of the world, he's he's finding a parity between his relationship to the Father and their relationship to the Father. Look what he says here. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus' prayer for Christians isn't that we would isolate ourselves. Jesus' prayer for Christians is not that we would cordon off our lives. In fact, his prayer to the Father isn't that the Father would remove them from this world. It's not. When we continually find ways of separating ourselves, when we continue to find ways to cordon ourselves off so that we might be kept safe, we reduce our ability to be impactful into this world. God has left us here to be salt and light. Salt is only ever effective when it comes into contact with something. It's only ever effective when it comes into close contact with something. And so he asked the Father, Look, I don't ask that you pull them out of the world, but in the midst of their presence being in the world, being effective in the world, that you keep them safe from the evil one. He's talking about Satan. Satan. And Peter writes about Satan in 1 Peter 5.8, and he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Jesus knows that the, the proclivity, that the desire, that the intensity, that the sole job of Satan is to run you off the rails. Keep lost people from coming to know Jesus and to completely lead you to scuttle your life. So his prayer for the disciples is is this prayer to God, God, keep them steadfast. Help them to be holy. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. That our time spent week in and week out, day in and day out, studying God's word would have this revolutionary change in us that we would be sanctified that you would be made holy, that you would be set apart, that your life would be distinctly different than before you came to know Jesus. This is his prayer for them because he knows in calling them to be set apart and calling them to be made holy, God's work in their lives, that they could then stand the possibility, the chance, the, 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 the opportunity to fundamentally change those they come into contact with. They need to be made holy, and they need to be made holy in the truth. Now, Jesus has already mentioned the truth and how the truth works to set us free. And knowing him who has described himself in John 14 and 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So even in the loss of Jesus' physical bodily presence before them, Still, they have the possibility of being made holy, resting and remaining in Him, resting and remaining in Jesus. They need to be preserved. They need to be made holy. They need to be sent out. Wouldn't it have been this great prayer, in some sense, if Jesus had gathered the disciples around? He gathered all of His followers around and said, "Look here." This is what it's going to be like for you. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk to dad. We're going to get these things all set up that, that you guys are kind of in the world, but, but you're not among them. You're not among, not among the world. And so I'm going to pray for you that you be kept safe. I'm going to pray for you that you be made holy. And they're all like, this is pretty great. I can do this. I can live here. We can have this little friend group. We, we were looking for another one of our number. Judas isn't a part of the group anymore, and we like even numbers. But, but we can do this. We can be a part of this group, and we can look internally, and we can care for each other. Could y'all do this? We'll move to the next section. Could y'all do this? There you go. <laughs> but that's not what he's done. That would be so simple in some sense. It would be so simple in some sense If he just said, look, I want you to be at home and be unified with other Christians. I want you to be preserved for them. I want you to be sanctified alongside them. But he comes to all of these things, all this preparatory work that he's given them, and then to this group that he's asked to be preserved, to this group that he's asked to be sanctified, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. God's prayer wasn't for our preservation together, but that so that being preserved, so that being made holy, we might be ready to be sent out. This is his prayer for them. This is his prayer for us. Being made ready. Being able to stand firm. Being made ready. Being set apart. Being made different. Being made holy over the course of your life, in your adherence to God's word, in the movement of his spirit in your innermost parts. That you be ready to be sent out. And he likens it to the way that Christ is sent out. He's sent out sacrificially. He's sent out humbly. He's sent out willing to be used by the Father. Willing to be broke. There is no safety net in a Christian life. There's no safe way to live your life as a Christian. There's only faithfulness. There's only obedience. And so he has sent them out, and so too we are sent out. Jesus finishes in verse 19. He says, and for their sake, for the sake of those I've sent out, for the sake of those I'm praying that they be made holy, for the sake of those who I'm praying would persevere, for their sake I consecrate myself. Consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus takes there a word which means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be set aside, to be separated. You can read it in the Old Testament where he talks about Aaron. He's been consecrated for a task. Moses has been consecrated for a task. Jeremiah has been consecrated for a task. And the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is set apart Unto obedience of the Father. Jesus wants us to understand, uh, understand this. So in John 10 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to <clears throat> lay it down and to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. But Jesus says here to the Father in the midst of his prayer, as I'm headed to the cross, ready to die i'm ready to submit myself to the will of the father so that they may be made holy As jesus purposes himself on the cross and walks in that direction he has in mind the sanctification the redemption the salvation of everyone who would come to know him he has in mind your name He has in mind your past. He has in mind your lostness. He has in mind your doubts. He has in mind your, your indifference. He has in mind your occupation with being seen as a good person. And he recognizes that all of that is liability on your part and that all it is for him to do is to submit himself to the will of the Father, to die on your behalf. To die on behalf of the apostles. That he might be consecrated The author of Hebrews speaks of this this same occurrence here of laying down his life in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Speaking of Jesus and the sufficiency of his salvation, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, he says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. How do you think the priest feels in the midst of this? He's offering these sacrifices and he recognizes that when he hits the end of them, if Karen sins, if, if Brent sins, if Jonathan sins, he's got to start over again. He's repeatedly offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus has made the possibility for all of us to be made holy by offering one sacrifice for all. Jesus' prayer for the disciples stands the possibility of tremendously affecting who they are and his action in his faithfulness in a son sanctifies them. And it has made them holy. So that as they are sent out, they are living lives which fundamentally alter those they come into contact with. If you're a Christian, if you're someone who has submitted yourself to Jesus and you have cried out to him to be saved, you have believed that he has died and risen again, the same applies to you. God's prayer for you is that you be preserved, sanctified, so that being sent out, you might be effective. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and we are reminded that he's coming again. And as he comes again, and we don't know the hour, we don't know the minute, but as he comes again, every one of us will give an account to how we live this life. Every one of us has an opportunity to be faithful to the gospel and to respond to the gospel. Let me pray for us and pray that God would help us to be a people found faithful, to be a people found responsive. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your goodness to us, for an opportunity to respond to you. Here as we take the Lord's Supper together, Father, I pray for those who've come into this place, God, not ready to take of the supper. God, that that you have made them ready, that even as we move through this, Father, that you would show them of your great love for them, of how you have given yourself in the Son for their redemption, for their salvation. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, that they would seek out one of our members, one of our pastors, and ask them, what must I do to be saved? So God, would you guide us in this time? Would you be honored and glorified as we worship you in taking the supper together? In Christ's name, amen.